Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today. We're even more grateful that you're a part of our community. Before we get to today's teaching, just wanted to give you a couple reminders and updates on things happening in the life of our community. First of all, if you're new or if you've been here since the beginning and are looking for more connection, we have something called Tables that encourages us to live life together outside of gatherings. Starting here in September, we have a bunch of options and all of this information and all the registration links can be found in the link in the show notes below. We have our new to South Bend City Church table happening several times this fall, both in person and digitally. Our first in-person one is coming up this week, September 10th right after our second gathering. This table is for all of those who feel new to our community, and it offers some history of this community, how we do church, as well as it offers the chance to meet our staff, meet others who are new, and to ask questions. For our in-person table, lunch is provided, but childcare is not. Your children are welcome to join you, but you do need to RSVP for this, so make sure to do that in the next couple days if you're planning on joining us this weekend, September 10th, right after our second gathering. Later on that night, September 10th at 6 p.m., we'll have our student tables kickoff. Student tables are for students from 6th to 12th grade, and after the kickoff, they'll meet on 1st and 3rd Sundays at 6 p.m. at Studebaker 112. Once again, students need to register for these tables. You can do so once again in the show notes below. And if you're interested in being an adult mentor, you can go to that link as well and just click on interested in being a mentor or host. We have a variety of other in-person table groups launching this fall, which you can check out once again in the show notes below. We also have an open table, which we'll talk about more next week. And once again, if you are a long-distance member of South Bend City Church, or if you find the digital space more accessible, we're always looking for ways to create table groups and community there. So if you're interested in hosting an online table group, make sure to reach out to tables at southbendcitychurch.com. Send an email there, and we'll get back to you. Well, if you consider yourself to be a part of South Bend City Church, you can give. It's through your generosity that we're able to do what we do. So if you're looking to give financially, you can do so in the link in the show notes below. We also know that generosity can come in the form of time as well. Here at South Bend City Church, we're so thankful to have the volunteers we have. We're always looking for more people to jump into our various volunteer opportunities, and here are a few that you can jump into. Both local and long distance, there's opportunities. If you're in person, we're always looking for some kid ministry volunteers. Whether it's nursery, pre-K, or elementary, we're always looking for adults who love to spend time with kids on Sunday mornings. If you're interested in that, you can go to the volunteer link in the show notes below and make sure that you choose kid ministry. And if you're a long-distance member of South Bend City Church and want to volunteer, there are a few ways to make that happen as well. Whether it be online table hosting or helping us out with some of our communication needs like graphic design or copywriting, make sure to fill out the volunteer form or send an email to info at southbendcitychurch.com to start a conversation about how to best share the gifts that you have with our community. All right. So we have one more week of Jesus stories. I know last week I told you it was our last one, but we've got a bonus week for you. And this week in John 21, we see Jesus trying to have a conversation with one of his followers about the calling on his life. But that disciple is distracted by the fate of someone else. So as we expand our circles of concern with a faith that includes our neighbors, strangers, and enemies, we ask ourselves, how do we stay committed to the lives that we are called to? Once again, thanks so much for joining us. We're so grateful you're a part of our community. Let's jump in with the rest of our community now. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Jason. Uh, I also want to add my welcome 
to what you've already heard. If you're new in the last few weeks, we may not know each other. I'm actually the lead pastor here. I've just been gone for a minute. Um, I've had the uh, privilege of a couple of things during the past month. One was a study intensive, which is a normal part of my pattern to prepare for the next stretch of teaching. I'm very excited about where we're headed starting next week. It'll be scintillating and surprising, and that's all I'm going to tell you right now, but I'm very excited about it. Uh, I also had the chance to do some travel with a book that I had come out and do some touring around that that was all really meaningful for me. Uh, however, I've been catching up on the podcast, and from what I can tell, you all have been treated to a feast over the last month or so. Uh, we've had a, yeah, right? Yeah. We've had a number of different voices uh, speaking from different stories of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, you heard from Angela, who talked about Mary and Martha and brought some context and conviction to our experience of that story. I uh, had Mike Goldsworthy here from Long Beach, a friend of South Bend City Church, who uh, shared the story of a sort of wasteful act of beauty in the Gospels and raised some really challenging questions there. Uh, we heard from Mallory Wyckoff, who talked about healing and freedom and led us in some reflection. Uh, we had a Sabbath week, which is really important, not just for the staff, but all the volunteers who make Sundays happen around here. We want to honor those rhythms of rest and work. So the whole thing took a week off. And then we came back with Meredith Miller, who uh, in the morning talked about joy uh, in the Gospels and some parenting stuff, and then offered a workshop afterwards. I'm just kind of curious, were any of you at the workshop with Meredith? None of you? I got a couple. Awesome. That's cool. I think we had good attendance there. It's just apparently they're all at the beach this week. That's fine. Um, I just want to say out loud, I'm really grateful for that moment, especially the work that Karen Grant's done to get us there. We talk often behind the scenes about our awareness that parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and a whole bunch of people who are raising kids at South and City Church are wrestling with big questions about how to give a faith to those kids and lead them in it in a way that avoids some of the landmines and pitfalls of the way that maybe we experienced that growing up. So really thankful that we had the chance to have Meredith here. And uh, you all have helped make that possible by the way that you give, by the way, so thanks again. Uh, we're going to wrap it up with one more Jesus story today. I'm going to take you into actually two stories from the Gospels and tell you a little bit about how they've been working on me. And that's one of the reasons I'm sharing it is because they've been working on me. But I also want to share these two stories in particular because uh, of how I hope they might work on our whole community. And there's a backdrop here, and it has to do with something I've observed about the people of South and City Church. Now, it's never fair to paint with such a broad brush a whole community of people. So if this isn't your experience, don't feel bad about that. This is just what I kind of observe as a trend. And the trend could be said something like this. A lot of us in the last few years have found ourselves uh, in a growing journey, a bit of an evolution, a bit of a movement forward. And the way that you could describe the before and after in that movement is that in the before, earlier, uh, in a different season of faith or life, you could say that we had a faith that taught us to look up, to connect with God, to seek God, to pursue God. And that's really good. I mean, that's right there at the heart of faith. And if that's not a part of faith, I don't know what faith is. So it's a faith that taught us to kind of look up, to connect with God, to hear from God, and to have a life with God. However, somewhere along the way, a lot of us realized that that faith that we'd been handed didn't teach us to also look around. And the growth point for a lot of us has been to seek a faith that not only helps us connect with God, but helps us look out around us in the world and to see our neighbors, to see strangers, to see even enemies for the experience they're having, to wonder about how faith connects all of us, how faith calls all of us to each other, about how faith teaches us to pay attention to the experience that other people are having. So this is a really good thing. I'm all for this movement to go from a faith that's just kind of looking up to a faith that's looking around. 
You might even say, another way of putting it is that like a lot of us, I think, had like our personal Jesus who had a lot to say about us or to us about our personal sin problem and what he was going to do about it. And I'm all for that. I think that's right there in the faith. I think that's true and good. But a lot of us maybe at some point figured out that that version of Jesus was too small and that he actually has more to say about other things in the world. So again, we've gone from like a faith that teaches us to look up to a faith that teaches us to look around. But today I want to talk a little bit about the dangers of the looking around. Because, of course, like every step of growth, every new moment of maturity, every little evolutionary uh, moment of progress brings with it some liabilities. And we've got to figure out how to calibrate for the new stance that we're learning to walk with in the world. And this has been a learning for me, and I see it for a lot of us. So that's where I'm going to take us. And to get started and to show some of the problems with this, perhaps, I want to turn to uh, the end of John's gospel. So uh, in the New Testament, you've got four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in John's gospel, right at the very, very end, you have this strange interaction between Jesus and one of his closest followers, a guy named Peter. Uh, if you know the gospels, you probably know a little bit about Peter. Peter is, um, he is loud. Uh, he uh, fumbles bravely on a regular basis. He has a kind of big persona in the story. And here at the very end, Jesus is going to have a conversation with him. Now, there's a bit of a backdrop, and we'll get further into this. But this is the same Peter who, just a few chapters earlier, we see him betraying his faithfulness to Jesus. As Jesus is being dragged away and crucified on three different occasions, Peter's asked, hey, are you with that guy? And three different times he says, no, he denies it. That's just some backdrop for where we're going. But let's jump into the middle of a conversation that Jesus and Peter are having at the end of the gospel right here in chapter 21. Jesus tells Peter, this is strange, I know. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Uh, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, what we know historically is that Peter was actually crucified like Jesus. And that reference to stretching out your hands is an actual reference to that death that he's going to endure. And then after saying this, he says to Peter, follow me. Now watch this. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Quick side note. This is John's gospel. John wrote it. And John's the disciple that Jesus loved. So yes, we do have a biographer who calls himself the disciple Jesus loved over and over and over again. Yes. So you picture like Peter and Jesus walking along and they're having this conversation. And Jesus is saying, I need to have a conversation with you about your life and where this is going to go. I'm trying to talk to you about you right now. And you see Peter like, well, what about him? What about that guy, right? I'll skip the parentheses and just go to when Peter saw this other guy, he asked, Lord, what about him? Next slide. And then Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say that he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Now, I know some of the details here are kind of strange and intense. We have Jesus... Uh, forecasting Peter's death in crucifixion. That's pretty gnarly. I understand that. But I'm just struck so deeply by this moment where Jesus is trying to have a conversation with Peter about his own life, about his own fidelity, about his own future, about his own calling. 
And right here at the very end of the gospel, it's like all Peter could do is say, what about him? What about that guy, right? And this feels so much like me to me. And what I want to kind of work out with you is the liability, the danger in um, a faith that is, is teaching us to look around, which is really good. But be careful what that looking around does for you and me. Because you might miss out on the conversation that God actually wants to have with you about you. Now, a little historical critical background here on John 21 that might help you understand this further. It's interesting. Um, many scholars think that John 21 is an addendum that was written later and added to John's gospel. And one of the historical reasons for that was that you've got this whole community of people that develops around John as their teacher. And uh, they had heard, perhaps, the story that Jesus had said, maybe John is not going to die before Jesus comes back. But the problem they have is John's dead. And Jesus hadn't come back yet. So there's like a clarif clarification that has to happen here so that this whole community that's trying to understand the story of John, their teacher, and Jesus, that gets kind of worked out here later in the text when it gets added. That's a historical critical lens on what may be going on here. But it also strikes me there, right there with that move, that Peter doesn't have all the information on John. He just thinks he does. Right, like Peter in that moment, it seems perhaps that, that Peter actually thinks that John's going to be around for the triumphant return of Jesus and like never have to go through a hard death on his way to that like future kingdom that they look forward to. But he's wrong about it. And this is so often one of the first problems when we start looking around and using that kind of comparative analysis to decide how we're going to live and what we're called to and what kind of convictions should drive us. Because you know this, right? You don't have all the information on them. You don't know what it's like to be them. You don't know what it's like to live in their skin. So if somebody else's life or circumstance is distracting you and making it harder for you to have the conversation that you need to have with God about your life, don't think that you've got all the information on them. Right? I mean, you know this. It's just radically different to live inside the experience that somebody is having in their own flesh and blood than it is to be on the outside looking in on that experience and thinking that you know what it's like for them. You just don't, which is one of the problems with doing this kind of comparative analysis. You're not working with complete information, right? I feel one of the really painful ways that we're often reminded of this is how often somebody who's uh, perhaps um, very wealthy or very famous or seems to be living a very charmed kind of life, how often do those lives end in tragedy? And like only in that moment are we reminded that no amount of external circumstantial favor can make up for whatever it is that they're facing on the inside of their own life, living in their own skin in those moments, right? We don't have all the information. So when you make that comparative move and you allow them, you kind of put your head on a swivel left and right and look around, rather than staying focused on the conversation God's trying to have with you about the life that God's calling you to, you start losing the conviction that you have about who you are here to be because you look over there or you look over there and you say, what about them? You don't have all the information, right? Now, there's another um, issue with all of this. It's not just that you don't have all the information on them. Uh, it's also that you start to lose touch with all the information on you. This can really skew the perspective that we have on our own lives when we start looking around left and right and trying to use those analyses to figure out whether we like our lives or what, what, what our lives are here for, or what we're meant to do. And I see this um, so clearly in another story that Jesus tells that underscores the fact that when you start doing that, you lose sight on your own life on your own reality, on the detail that you're living in. And it comes from a famous story that Jesus tells. Anybody heard of the parable of the prodigal son? 
Yeah, famous, famous story that Jesus tells, right? Um, interestingly, I don't think the story is about what you think it's about. That's not fair. I know. I don't know what you think it's about. But um, <laughs> let, me, let me summarize the first part of it and point out how it's often talked about, and then we'll move on from there. So the first part of the story that Jesus tells is that it's a parable. It's a, sort of an imaginative tale that Jesus tells about a father who has two sons. And the younger son comes to the father and basically says something like, I wish you were dead because at least I could have the inheritance. And the father says, I'll just let you have your part of the inheritance now. So that younger son takes the inheritance, leaves a relationship with his father and family, and just goes out and lives this big, wild, reckless life. And after a while, all of his resources are exhausted, and he comes to the end of himself. And he has a sort of awakening moment. He gets up, and he turns around, and he goes back to his father's household. Now, he's going back thinking, maybe I could beg my way back into being a servant in my father's household. But the father has this much more generous response to the son. The story says that the father sees the son a long way off, which suggests that he's been looking for him on the horizon the whole time, right? And then it says the father actually, like, runs toward the son, which in that culture, for a man of that age, is a radical sort of abandonment of cultural dignity to run toward the son. This is a father who has no concern for the cultural script as he embraces this lost son. And then he puts on this big feast for the son. Now, that's a beautiful story. That's the first part of the story. And often when the story gets preached... The whole thing is about like the radical, uh, all-embracing, forgiving love of God. I think that's true. I think Jesus believes that. I don't think it's why he told the story. The context around Luke 15 where the story occurs is that Jesus has already been very clearly embodying that message. He's been having meals with notorious sinners. He's been healing people who are out of bounds. His entire life has been a testimony to that first big, beautiful truth, which is that God runs toward those who find themselves on the fringes, runs toward those who find themselves at the end of themselves, and, and radically, deeply, generously welcomes them back. That's not news in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has been living this in every way his entire life. The problem is that some of the religious people are getting disgruntled about it. And so right before Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, we find out that Jesus is aware that some of the rule keepers, some of the boundary markers, some of the people who think of themselves as already in are troubled by, frustrated with, disgruntled at the fact that Jesus is showing such radical kindness to these outsiders, to these notorious sinners. So the really radical move is the thing that Jesus does at the end of the parable of the prodigal son, after he's said a story that, that's no different than the life he's already been living. This is the new revelation here at the end. This is a conversation with the older son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. And the servant says, your brother's come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? And the father says, my son, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. Did you see what happened there? Jesus tells a story about um, the way that we lose sight 
of our own belonging, our own blessedness, the giftings, the graces, the goodness that is a part of our life when we see somebody else getting in on it. And this is the second problem with looking around too much instead of maintaining the, the conversation that only you can have with God about your life. You look around too much, you might not just have misinformation about their circumstances or their experiences, the people that are distracting you. You're going to start missing out on your own circumstance, your own experience. You're going to have a distorted relationship with the goodness and the beauty and the joy of your very own life. Uh, tragically, at the end of that story, it's the older son who remains on the outside looking in by his own choice. Nobody excluded him. Nobody kept him out. But at the end of that story, he's left on the outside of the feast looking in hungry while the other brother fills himself. But he could have been in there too. But somehow the, the mercy or goodness or kindness shown to the other guy prevents him from seeing the mercy and goodness that have been a part of his very own life. A couple of notes on this story. Uh, one, um, this is actually uh, pretty common family system stuff. I don't know if you knew that. You know how I found out? I talked to a therapist about it. I was going to see a therapist, and the story came up for reasons that are none of your business. <laughs> Come to find out, this is actually a pretty archetypal story that's told in ancient cultures because people have seen for a very long time that in family systems this can happen. Well, what about that guy? Why do they get that? Why do, why do they enjoy that? And the one who's sort of been a part of the status quo doesn't realize that the status quo has been really good to them the whole time. There's also some kind of new insight about human nature that brings some more perspective on this story and the danger of looking around when it's time to look in or time to look up. Here's the insight. Uh, when, when social psychologists and scientists look at human happiness and the way that we gauge our own experience of happiness, they can do some things. Like they can control for the basics because like you need some basics to be okay, right? You need safety, and shelter, you need food security, you need some basic needs met. That's really important. We're not talking about that. But once you control for those variables, once you sort of create a data set that controls for variables around like basic safety and food security and shelter and all that kind of stuff, and then you ask, apart from those variables, like what's the, say, the salary number? What's the wage that makes you, like, like really optimizes your happiness? Anybody know what the answer is? A little more than your neighbor. It's true. It's actually true. Once they sort of control for like, like basic variables of need, safety, and all that kind of stuff, and they try to figure out like how much money, how much financial material blessing does it take for you to be happy, the answer is a little more than your neighbor. Because we do this thing, right? Instead of like taking stock of our own life and being aware of the good things that are a part of it, we look around. And then when we look around, we not only have a distorted perception of their experience, we have a distorted perception of our experience. And when that happens, we're robbed of, of the good that's already a part of our lives. This is the like human nature 101, and Jesus tells a lot of stories and does a lot of things to confront it. Uh, for me, uh, one of the practices that has ebbed and flowed in my life, but I know I have to return to it when I'm losing the plot, is a simple gratitude list every night. It's so simple and it's so sacred for me. I just keep a little notebook by my bed, and um, when I'm faithful in this practice, and I've recently come back to this practice, it takes just a few minutes at night to sit uh, next to my bed and just kind of ruminate through the day and find the gifts that were a part of it, the graces that met me in it. And then if I'm really on my game, then what I'll try to do as I fall asleep is I'll just pick one of those and I'll savor it. Let's kind of hang out with that experience, with that memory as I fall asleep. And this isn't me trying to fake myself out. This is me knowing that if I don't do this, 
I will, um, I will mischaracterize my own life in the way that I narrate it to myself. And I won't realize that all along it's like God was saying, like, I'm trying to have a conversation with you, and I'm trying to take care of you, and I'm trying to lead you in your actual life. And along the way, I'll take care of you. I'll give you what you need. But if you put your head on too much of a swivel and you spend too much time worried about them, you're not going to see it. I really believe we have to have our own conversation. And this is what comes back to the looking up or looking in. Um, even as we expand and become the kind of people who look around, this is important. Even as we become the kind of people who have regard for those around us, neighbors, strangers, enemies, even as we grow up into that larger circle of belonging, even as we do that, we have to keep having our own conversation. We have to carve out some kind of secret place where we're having a conversation about our own life, about our own calling, about our own convictions, and figuring out how to live in alignment with those things, regardless of what we see when we look back and wonder what about them, right? Um, let me tell you why this has mattered to me in sort of two movements, and I'll kind of use this to wrap it up. Uh, a movement that goes back a few years and the one that I've been living in right now. Uh, the movement that goes back a few years, some of you know parts of the story. I don't know if I've ever told all of this story. Uh, but let's go back to 2016 and the um, early days of South Bend City Church. So we were just getting up and running, and in the fall of 2016, we began meeting uh, regularly on Wednesday nights at The Brick. Some of you were there. Um, I love that we're still together in this work. And we would do something there at the brick that looked a lot like this. We would sit in the round and we would worship and pray and we would study scripture together and then we'd hang out afterwards and get to know each other. And that was really, in a lot of ways, one of the early founding moments of Southland City Church. Well, during that same time, so we're meeting just on Wednesday nights. Um, for years at that point and continuing to this day, uh, Nashville, Tennessee has been sort of like a second home to me. Uh, a lot of my closest relationships are there. There's some churches that I've worked with over the years. And going into that fall of 2016, there's a church uh, where I had just started doing a little bit of guest speaking that uh, abruptly lost their lead pastor uh, because that person was found to have um, been living with a uh, very extraordinary and egregious gap between the life he talked about and the life he was living. And so um, with like 48 hours notice, this church that had like 9,000 people attending every week uh, lost its founding lead pastor with like no context or story, just like that, he's gone. And so these are friends of mine who work there and lead that church. And like I said, Nashville's like a second home to me. And we were meeting on Wednesday nights here in South Bend, so my Sunday mornings were free. And so during the fall of 2016 and the spring of 2017, um, I would fly down there roughly twice a month and do Sundays for them because uh, I had like old sermons in my pocket that I could use and it was helpful for them to get them through and I was happy to be able to do it, right? Well, you should know that the, the first time I went down there after the lead pastor abruptly quit, I told them very explicitly, I said, I'm not coming to your church to preach unless you understand right now that I'm not on the market. Uh, we have a church in South Bend. We're just getting started. And uh, I need you to know, like, I don't want to lead you along. I don't want to confuse you, right? So I need you to tell me that you understand that I'm just here to fill a momentary gap for you all while I stick to what we're doing in South Bend. And they said very clearly, yes. And then they completely forgot about that. And so here's what happens then, the kind of situation that emerges during those uh, six months or so, is um, on Wednesday nights we'd show up at the brick and we're setting up chairs and we're wondering like, are we going to get like 100 people today? And like, you know, all of us who like quit our jobs to be a part of this thing, are we going to make payroll? And like all that stuff's just kind of like floating out there, right, you know? 
Um, there's a lot of sort of early chaos in planting a church and figuring out how to do everything from scratch, right? So that's happening on Wednesday nights. And then on Sundays, let me tell you how Sundays would go for me. And some of the details that I'm going to share right now are going to frustrate some of you. And you're going to want to roll your eyes and you're going to have strong feelings. Just get over it for the story, okay? Just hang in the story with me and then you can have your opinion about it later, okay? So the way Sundays would go is I would pick up my rental car at the airport and I would drive to the backstage door at the megachurch. And the bodyguard that they assigned to me would meet me at my car door. I don't know why, because I don't think there were any threats on my life. But the bodyguard would meet me at my car. And he would escort me through the backstage hallways to my green room. My green room was very well furnished. Including, like, all of my favorite non-alcoholic drinks. I said favorite drinks at the 9 a.m. And I was like, well, I should clarify. We weren't boozing in the morning. But... Um, <laughs> They had like these specialty Starbucks drinks that I really liked at the time and some snacks that were hand-picked because I liked them. And I kind of get warmed up in the green room and kind of prepare myself. And in the meantime, I've got this like closed-circuit TV that's pumping in the sound check from the band. And I don't know if you know this, but there are musicians in Nashville. <laughs> so this band was like lights out, high-octane, powerful, man. And then, you know, when the service like, time came, you know, they, they would just um, do this really beautiful, dynamic, dramatic thing. And all of that was the opener. And I got to be the main event. And um, I like preaching. And there's a certain dynamic range that's appropriate in a room like that that's not appropriate in a room like this. Like if I preached here the way I preached there, I don't think you all would like it because it might feel like I was yelling at you. But it's not that I'm yelling at you. It's just a different dynamic range that's appropriate for a much bigger room with bigger dynamics, right? And I like the fact that I got to do that too, you know? And so um, all of that was going on. And then, like I said, they forgot the promise they made about not trying to recruit me. So after I would get this absolute ego rush of adrenaline preaching to thousands of people and going back to my green room, they would bring offers to me. And the offers were dramatically more financially advantageous than the kind of financial advantages that any of us at Southland City Church have ever enjoyed. Dramatically um, different, you know? Uh, at one point, there was a serious floating of a like, private plane access, which I don't know what I would use that for, but that was like put out there for a moment. They thought maybe I could live in South Bend and fly down every week on the private jet or something like that. Um, when I was in Nashville, I got to focus like 110% of my energy on the preaching, which is one of my favorite parts of my job. I love focusing on the craft of this work. I think it matters. I think good preaching is important, and I feel alive when I get to do it. Uh, and then on Wednesday nights, it's like 10% of my attention and energy could go into the preaching. And then all of us on the team were just trying to figure everything out. So the other 90% went to everything else, right? And guys, I got really lost in that for a moment. Uh, this is the part of the story I don't think I've ever told. There was a Wednesday night where I pulled up to the brick, and I sat in my car, and I almost didn't walk in. I just kept looking around at these different circumstances, right, these different situations, and I was losing track of the actual conversation that I had had with God that got me into this in the first place. I was losing track of the convictions, of the beliefs, of the experiences that brought me to this point, knowing this is what I'm supposed to do. And instead, I was just looking around at all the perks and thinking about if I don't take it, there's going to be some other person who gets that gig, and that's going to be hard for me. And I sat in the parking lot and actually called a mentor of mine. And he was somewhat aware of the circumstance, the situation. And I said, hey, man, I just need you to talk to me right now. 
Like, I need you to bring me back, you know, to some convictions. And he did a masterful job. And all, all he did was ask me some questions. And little by little, it's like those questions helped me hear within myself that there was something deeper and truer than the distraction, right? There was something deeper and truer than the allure. There was something deeper or truer than the part of me that was drawn to the superficial benefits of that other thing. There was something deeper and truer in me. And we have to have that conversation to find it. Curiously, in John 21, the text that I started with, right before the part that I showed you, that's exactly what happens. Let me take you back a little bit. Remember I told you that Peter had betrayed Jesus three times? Peter had heard come out of his own mouth three times, his own capacity for betrayal, for selfishness, for self-protection. And then this happens. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And I'm not the only one who sees it this way. A lot of people have come to believe that the reason Jesus asked him this question three times is that it sort of mirrors those three betrayals. And what I've come to think about that is I don't think Jesus needs the answer to this question. I think Jesus knows that Peter needs to hear that answer come out of his own mouth. That Jesus is somehow using this conversation to bring Peter back to the truest part of himself, the deepest part of himself, the place that lives not for the distractions but for the convictions, right? But sometimes you, you have to cultivate that space, that conversation to stay true to that deepest, best part of yourself. And while I'm so thankful that we are a community of people who's looking to, learning to not just look up but look around, I, I just want to make sure, I want to do what I can to help us keep looking up and keep looking in even while we do that. Because that conversation, the day that that conversation dies is the day that we begin to be robbed of our actual lives. The conversation that calls you to be you. That reminds you that regardless of what you see around you, there's, there's your life to live, your convictions to honor, your path to walk. I don't want us to be robbed of that. The good news is um, this community is full of really brave and beautiful examples of that. Uh, one of the dangers in me telling the story that I just told is it could make me look like I'm the chief martyr here. <laughs> it's not true. Um, everybody on the staff at Southland City Church I, I, I know has their own version of these stories. And not just staff, but a lot of you um, have your own stories of what it's taken for you to stay true. Uh, I even know that for some, like being a part of Southland City Church makes the rest of your week harder because we're a little bit suspect out there sometimes. Uh, I know that that's true, so I don't mean to center my own story here, but I did want to explain to you why this means so much to me right now. Uh, the last five weeks, I got to um, <clears throat> do a thing that was really meaningful to me uh, on two fronts. Um, one is I got to um, show up with kindred communities, faith spaces that share a lot in common with South and City Church. Um, we share similar convictions about including people. We share similar convictions about a faith that has to be not just good but just. Uh, we share convictions about a faith that's both like deeply rooted in what we've inherited and a faith that's curious and open. And I don't think I would have gotten to be in those spaces for the last four or five weeks if I had taken another turn at that fork in the road back in 2016. 
it's been um, a remarkable privilege. And the other thing about these last few weeks is, um, it, you know, as a book tour, so I was kind of speaking from this book that I've written, and as I was doing that, I was struck by the fact that um, when I hear my voice right now, it sounds like me. I don't know if I would feel that way if I had um, confused that moment back in 2016. And um, yeah, there were things that are um, hard for all of us when we stick with our convictions. There are things that are hard for all of us when we keep doubling down on, on the deepest part of ourselves. But the rewards are plentiful. And maybe one of the deepest is simply knowing that you are living your actual life, the one that God gave you to live, rather than some parody, some imitation of another path that was never yours, but we got distracted and we looked around too much and we lost sight of the path that we were here to walk. And the reward of, of becoming yourself with God is priceless. And um, even while I brought this as a sermon for this church, this is also a teaching I learned from this church. And I love getting to be part of a place where we're learning together to not just look around, but to keep looking in and to be true. So uh, that's my last uh, edition of the Jesus Stories series for us. Um, next week, we're going to jump into something, like I said, surprising and scintillating. I'm very excited. Uh, we're going to take a look at an old text that I think many are familiar with. I'm going to try to make the case that it's different than you think and that it's doing something um, far more interesting and beautiful than perhaps what you've heard. Uh, so how's that for a teaser? Y'all excited? Good. Don't miss it. Um, cool. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? May you continue the good, important, and beautiful work of looking around. May you take into your gaze neighbors and strangers and enemies. And may you trust Jesus to lead you into a life that's good for them. But even as you do that, may you continue to look in and look up. May you continue to tap into that sacred conversation that only you can have with God about who you are and what you are here to do. And may your life and mine give glory to God and give witness to the weight and the beauty of the one who gives us these good and beautiful lives. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.